Hello and welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Expedition History. This is the third and final episode of the Drake Trilogy, at long last, and I can't wait to begin. So let's dive on in. Sir Francis Drake stood at the head of his flagship and gazed out upon the horizon, his eyes fixated on the distant shore. Squinting against the rising sun, he could just barely discern the faint outline of the Spanish port of Cadiz, one of the mustering points for the largest naval force the world had ever seen. It was early in the morning of April 29, 1587, and come late afternoon, the bustling port of Cadiz would find itself obscured by gun smoke and a state of tumultuous chaos. Two and a half weeks earlier, Drake had departed Plymouth, England with orders from Queen Elizabeth I to disrupt Spanish military operations in the Atlantic. The Kingdom of England had been in an uneasy period of peace with the Spanish Empire for decades, though both sides conducted unofficial strikes against the other, mainly through the means of privateers, mariners who essentially acted as state-sponsored pirates. The most successful of these privateers, Sir Francis Drake, had made a name for himself through the continued success of his many daring exploits. At this point, I will say that if you haven't listened to parts 1 or 2 of the Drake Trilogy, I recommend doing so before continuing on with this episode, as we really do dive into his raids, voyages, and explosive rise to fame and power. For those of you who did tune into parts 1 and 2, again, welcome back. Anyways, Drake's exploits made him a favorite of the Queen, and a poster child for just why the King of England's mere existence was a thorn in the side of the Spanish Empire. Building upon their recent history of less than friendly interactions, the English crown drew additional ire from Spain after supporting Dutch rebels in their war to toss off the imperial yoke in the Spanish-held Netherlands, leading to open war between the two powers. We briefly covered the start of the Anglo-Spanish War in the last episode, but we'll cover it again here in greater detail. Though the English support of the Dutch was originally more or less an open secret, Numerous setbacks suffered by the rebels at the hands of the Spanish commander in the area, the Duke of Parma, remember him, he's important, forced the English to openly support the Dutch and supply them with men, horses, and financial aid, afraid that Spain's reassertion of rule over the Netherlands would threaten England. The increased English involvement in the Dutch rebellion was viewed by the Spanish king, Philip II, as an act of war against his empire, and so he kicked off the Anglo-Spanish War in late 1585 with the seizure of all English merchant vessels in Spanish harbors confiscating their cargo and imprisoning their crews. One of these merchantmen, a ship by the name of Primrose, fought her way out of Spanish clutches, broke through the ensuing blockade, and sailed hard for London, where her captain broke the news of the Spanish assault on English shipping. Furious at this sudden attack upon their financial interests, England unleashed a storm of privateers upon a large number of Spanish targets. This was when Drake was sent to the Caribbean and raided Santo Domingo, Cartagena, and St. Augustine in what's known as the Great Expedition to America as covered in the last episode. Throughout the years of 1585 and 1586, the Anglo-Spanish War was primarily limited to land war in the Netherlands and small-scale naval engagements in the Americas. However, that all changed on February 8, 1587, when English forces executed Mary, Queen of Scots, for plotting to overthrow Queen Elizabeth. Mary, the former Queen of Scotland, as her title suggests, had once held claim to the English crown then held by Elizabeth, but far more applicable to us is that she was also held up by the English Catholics as the one true Queen of England, and eyed by the Spanish as a potential ally should she ascend to the throne, one who could bring England away from Protestantism and back into the Catholic fold. Her death infuriated Catholics across Europe, but perhaps no one was more outraged than Philip II, who vowed to invade England, depose Elizabeth, and place a Catholic monarch upon the English throne. 
but that was something far more easily said than done. Though Philip did possess the finest land army in Europe, getting them to England would be no easy feat. Most of you, I'm sure, are aware that England and the Greater British Isles as a whole are entirely separated from Europe by the English Channel, which, at its narrowest point, is still a watery expanse approximately 33 kilometers or 20.5 miles wide, and so any forced movements to and from the continent would require some sort of nautical transport. This in itself would prove to be a difficult challenge to overcome, as the channel had already garnered a long-standing reputation for its rough weather and turbulent waters. But that was hardly the largest obstacle any Spanish mariners would have to face, as any Spanish force attempting to land on English shores were sure to come face to face with the nascent Royal Navy and her mutually supportive swarms of privateers and armed merchantmen. Thus, Philip was faced with a daunting conundrum. Spain was the world's largest superpower, and they had more or less ruled the seven seas, but to suggest that they held any real power in and around the waters of the English Channel was absolutely absurd. True, a large percentage of their renowned land army was currently stationed in the Netherlands, but they were almost entirely sustained overland, either through the local Spanish-held Dutch territories, or through the famed Spanish Road, which originated in northern Italy and passed through eastern France. That is to say, an easy solution to British hegemony in the English Channel wasn't currently in the cards. At least, not yet. Therefore, King Philip II set into motion the creation of an invincible armada, the mightiest war fleet any monarch had ever put to sea. Calls for ships were sent throughout his holdings in Europe, and orders sent throughout his many continental naval bases. Captains who answered the call to war convened on the ports of Cadiz, located on the Atlantic coast of southwestern Spain, and Lisbon, located on the western coast of Spanish-held Portugal. The two mustering points for the invasion fleet became bustling hubs of activity, and played host to all manner of warships. Mighty galleons that bore the scars of countless duels with privateers, armed merchantmen whose few guns were more than made up for in their captain and crew's inexorable hunt for wealth, and lightly armed pinnaces whose small frames would ferry messages throughout the fleet to coordinate movements, as well as slip under the guns of the enemy vessels to deliver a surprise delivery of Spanish swordsmen. Yep, despite Philip's best efforts, it was impossible to keep the assembly of such a large force a secret. When word reached Queen Elizabeth of the invasion preparations, she personally handpicked Drake, her nautical champion, to sail south for Spain, with the express mission to harry Spanish overseas supply routes between the Mediterranean and Portugal, capture or destroy any Spanish ships within Spanish ports, and most importantly of all, to confront this Spanish armada if it had already made it out to sea. And so Drake sailed south, aiming for the Strait of Gibraltar, into which he could exit the Atlantic and enter the Mediterranean to strike at the soft underbelly of the Spanish Empire. Along the way, however, sat the port of Cadiz, a known hub of Spanish naval activity even to the English at the time. It was worth a detour to sail by and see what the Spaniards were up to in the area. If there was actually any sort of Grand Armada, Drake almost certainly thought, it would definitely be located at Cadiz. Little did he know just how right he'd be. As his fleet closed the gap on Cadiz in the waning daylight hours of April 29th, 1587, Drake took stock of the situation. The Queen had entrusted him to lead a fleet of four Royal Navy galleons, joined by a motley assortment of 20 armed merchant vessels bought and paid for by various aristocratic investors. He had done far more with less, but the threat before him wasn't just some undefended colonial port. As far as he could tell, Cadiz was swarming with over 80 large vessels, mostly composed of carracks, large wooden sailing ships with three to four masts with high-riding fore and aft decks that towered over the innumerable amount of smaller civilian vessels that sat in the harbor. The carracks, the technological predecessors to the galleon, 
were by no means the pinnacle of naval power, yet they outnumbered Drake's fleet nearly three to one. Making things worse for the English fleet, a series of cannons were positioned all along the shore, ensuring that any foreign invader would be met with a hail of withering gunfire. The Spanish defenses were imposing, and the odds stacked against him, but all in all, there wasn't anything Drake hadn't seen before. In his typical fashion, as the sun began to hang low in the sky, Drake seized the opportunity, and with his fleet behind him, stormed into the Bay of Cadiz. The Spaniards, noticing the English advance, quickly prepared to launch a counterattack. Led by Pedro de Acuna, a number of Spanish warships left their anchorages and sailed into the bay in order to meet the English fleet head-on. The two forces closed the distance between each other, but it was Drake who was able to get his guns onto the enemy first. Rushing into the fray, de Acuna's fleet was relatively disorganized compared to the English line of battle, who in turn took advantage of their superior positioning and range of guns to pour devastating volleys of cannon fire into their Spanish opponents. Lacking any confidence in his ability to stop Drake in the open waters of the bay, de Acuna withdrew his scattered fleet and returned to port, where they could count on support from the coastal defense batteries. Drake and his men pressed on with their assault, and rode into the port nipping at the heels of de Acuna's captains. As they neared the coast, Drake ordered his subordinate officers to assemble together landing parties and ready their launches. They're going to storm Cadiz by both land and sea. Creeping closer to land, the English began to lower their rowboats into the water, packed full of hardened marines and veteran sailors, more than ready to line their pockets with the loot of Cadiz. However, as the launches began to depart, the English found themselves within range of the Spanish coastal defense guns, whose cannons now rained down upon the men, some whizzing overhead as others crashed into the bay, showering the landing parties with sprays of seawater. The Spanish cannonades were heavy, though they weren't particularly lethal. Most of the shots missed their mark, and a few that struck the English warships did so at a range so far that the balls merely bounced off the solid wooden hulls. Regardless, the storm of iron shot was thick enough that Drake found his fleet suppressed, and with the coming onset of darkness, was unwilling to press any further. Believing that the rapid seizure of Cadiz was now impossible, Drake recalled his launches and withdrew his fleet back into the open bay. There, outside the range of the defenders' guns, they'd spend the night, deep in hostile waters, the men on watch making sure to keep their eyes peeled, lest they fall victim to a surprise second Spanish counterattack. As the sun rose over the Spanish countryside in the early morning hours of April 30th, the break of day illuminated Drake's fleet as they sailed hard for Cadiz once again, renewing their attack upon the port before de Acuna's men could react. Similar to the day before, the English engaged the Spanish defenders in a series of isolated gun battles as they made their way into the harbor, overwhelming the defenders' picket ships piecemeal before falling onto the exposed harbor, whose ships were still largely at anchor. Braving the fire of the coastal guns, Drake's ships surged into port, unloading salvo after salvo at the massive anchored ships, obliterating their hulls in an ever-increasing eruption of splinters, setting many alight, sinking others, and severely damaging countless more. Those who presented themselves as isolated and defenseless enough for an easy score were boarded by the English sailors and seized for their cargo, their hapless crews surrendering without a fight. Those Spaniards who manned the coastal guns, already unable to hit much of anything, found themselves unable to fire as hotly as they had before, as many of their English targets had sailed so close into the anchorages that they could not fire out of fear of hitting a friendly ship. The fighting raged throughout the day and well into dusk, with Drake and his men holding the upper hand of the fighting the entire way through. Fortunately for the Spaniards, however, Father Time eventually intervened, and with the close of day, the English departed Cadiz and sailed back into open waters, closely followed by the onset of night. The past 36 hours had been disastrous for the Spanish defenders of Cadiz, but given the sweet reprieve of darkness, they knew not to spoil it. 
reorganizing their defenses, the Spaniards stayed up all night preparing for the dragon to rear his ugly head once again. With the break of dawn on May 1st, 1587, all of Cadiz watched the horizon with fear, expecting the soft sunrise to treacherously give way to a brand new day of violence. All day long, they waited for Drake. But the Englishman never came. As the Spaniards prepared all night for another attack, Drake and his men spent the same amount of time tending to their wounded, mending their vessels, and preparing for their departure. As the defenders of Cadiz eyed the morning horizon, expecting yet another offensive, Drake's fleet sailed north, departing the Bay of Cadiz, and leaving the stunned port city in their wake. Behind them, they left as many as 37 Spanish warships utterly destroyed, smashed to bits, and sent below the waves, or forced towards the shore and wrecked upon the rocks. Four more Spanish vessels had been outright captured by the English, and were taken with Drake's fleet on their departure, complete with their vast stores of provisions. From a combat strength perspective, the raid on Cadiz was a disaster for Spain. They had lost a total of 41 warships destroyed or captured, an even larger number of ships damaged, and an unknown yet certainly high amount of casualties in sailors, officers, and marines. But the greatest blow against Philip's war plans didn't come from the losses at sea, but from the attack on their logistics. Unbeknownst to Drake, his attack on Cadiz had led to the destruction of a large percentage of the seasoned barrel staves Spain had accumulated for the Armada. Now, you may be wondering, what on earth is a barrel stave? I wondered the same thing when I found this out. Barrel staves are essentially the series of wooden planks that are cut in a slightly bent shape, which when bundled together in a circular pattern, create the body of the standard barrel. Not only do the staves make up the barrel itself, which in turn is predominantly used for the storage of provisions, but when seasoned, further aid in the preservation of said stored provisions. This doesn't seem like too big of a deal at first glance, but when you consider that those staves were meant to be used to create the vast majority of the barrels that the Armada was going to rely on to store their food, water, and gunpowder, then you really start to realize the problem at hand. Thus, King Philip was faced with two options. Delay the Armada's attack until the supply situation can be properly addressed with the production of new staves, or maintain the current invasion of England timeline and allow your crews to take the supply shortcomings head-on. Can you guess which one Philip chose? Let's just say that when the Spanish Armada sets sail in only one year's time, it will suffer through a crippling series of supply shortages, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. As the imperial authorities in Cadiz licked their wounds and scrambled to pull together enough ships to pursue the English marauders, Drake sailed his fleet along the southern coast of Spain and Portugal, ravaging Spanish and Portuguese shipping the entire way. On May 14th, they took a short break from pillaging enemy merchantmen and weighed anchor off the coast of Lagos, Portugal, located on the country's southwestern tip. Here, they briefly caught their breath, so to speak, but just enough to land a force of 1,000 men on the Portuguese mainland, overwhelm the surprised coastal defenders, and sack four separate fortresses before once again disappearing into the night. By this point, Drake had received a considerable amount of intelligence in regards to the forced generation of the Spanish Armada, information gleaned from a seemingly endless number of captured enemy dispatches, documents, and personnel. Cadiz had been an obvious hotspot of Spanish activity, but Drake found himself staring at an alarmingly increasing pile of evidence stating that Cadiz wasn't the only point of Spanish force generation. By all accounts, it appeared as if Lisbon too was harboring a titanic naval buildup, and there was only one way to find out. The English fleet sailed north from Lagos, the winds carrying them swiftly up the Portuguese Riviera and right onto the doorstep of Portugal's largest city. There, the first Marquis of Santa Cruz, Alvaro de Bazan, 
was overseeing the necessary preparations for his half of the armada as he was readying the fleet to sail south and consolidate with their comrades in Cadiz before the invasion of England. The Cadiz portion of the plan, quite obviously, had been ruined by Drake's surprise attack on the port. However, word of Drake's assault traveled faster over land than Drake did by sea, and de Bazan was not surprised by any means when the dragon and his fleet appeared over the horizon and put in only 25 kilometers to the west of Lisbon. Assessing the situation before him, Drake observed the primed and ready coastal batteries, their guns manned by well-prepared crews, ready to shred his fleet before they so much as even think about moving on Lisbon. And even if the shore guns were neutralized, Drake would still have to contend with Debazan's fleet, a force that vastly outnumbered his own, against which Drake could not count on the element of surprise. But Drake was no fool. Under the guise of exchanging prisoners, Drake sent envoys to Lisbon. Their official goal was to speak with Debazan, though their real goal was to survey the port and collect as much intelligence on the Spanish preparations as possible. Speaking with the envoys, de Bazan stated that he could not partake in a prisoner exchange, as he did not have any English subjects as prisoners. That was true. He then followed up on that message by stating that he was not preparing for any action whatsoever. That, at this point, without any sort of reasonable doubt, was a bold-faced lie. Yet, the English could do nothing but leer at the Spaniards, after a minor exchange of gunfire between English vessels and Spanish coastal guns, Drake and his fleet sailed away, their reconnaissance complete. Sailing back south, the English briefly rested once again near Lagos, in the vicinity of one of the subdued fortresses they had taken earlier. While planning their next move, Drake's thought process was interrupted by a host of Carracks sent in pursuit from Cadiz. After some short gunplay, the Spanish realized that they didn't have a chance, and so withdrew south. Drake, meanwhile, took his fleet west for the Azores, where they spotted a Portuguese carrack off the coast of Salmaga Island, the largest in the chain. Despite firing a few cannonades in defiance, the carrack was taken rather quickly, and for the English, it was worth every ounce of effort. On board the carrack was a large amount of gold, spices, and silk from the Portuguese trading posts in India, whose seizure made her the first vessel to ever be captured on the return voyage from the Indies. With their holds full of loot and their war chests full of information, Drake steered the fleet north for England. They pulled into port on July 6th, 1587, flush with victory, and as always, were received by a jubilant crowd. Drake and his men had captured or destroyed over 100 Spanish vessels of varying tonnage, officially uncovered the Spanish plot to invade England, and had humiliated the entirety of the Spanish Empire by sitting in their premier port almost unchallenged for three whole days. Having already met with great success against Spain in the New World, and now adding these fresh Atlantic exploits to his impressive resume, Drake proudly boasted to any that would listen that he had personally singed the King of Spain's beard, a proclamation that was always met with a terrific uproar of cheers. However, despite his bold public appearances, Drake realized that, in private, all he had really done was delay the impending storm, and feverishly wrote to Queen Elizabeth, warning her of the dangers that her realm would soon face. Prepare in England strongly, he wrote. Stop him now, referring to Philip II, and stop him forever. The Spanish spent the rest of 1587 reconsolidating the Armada, and continued to draw large amounts of men and material from across their empire. Yet, as I briefly alluded to earlier, time was of the essence, and though in theory the Armada could take its sweet time resupplying, the same cannot be said about the Spanish army. Relatively unmolested by the English, 
The ground arm of the invasion had entirely completed their necessary preparations, but were now crammed into unhygienic military camps as they waited for the arrival of the Armada, which of course was now delayed an additional year. These military encampments, always a hotbed of sickness and disease, only became more and more foul as over 15,000 unfortunate soldiers were forced to wallow in their own filth. The commander of the army, the Duke of Parma, was perhaps the preeminent general of his day, and though he had proven his ability to decisively defeat the enemy on more than one occasion, he quickly found he could do little to stem the tide of disease. As his men began to drop dead of dysentery, typhoid fever, and tuberculosis, Parma frantically wrote to his king that the invasion must begin soon, or else there wouldn't be any soldiers to take part in it. Reading the letters, Philip knew that the time to begin the invasion was upon him. The fleet had an entire year to replenish their stores and refresh their ranks. They had sat in port long enough. It was time to act. The invasion plan called for the Armada to sail straight into the English Channel and seize either the Isle of Wight or the port of Southampton. Both are located on the coast of south-central England, with Southampton sitting on the coast itself, whereas the Isle of Wight is just 1 to 5 miles, or 1.68 kilometers, offshore, separated by a body of water commonly referred to as the Solent. This effectively meant that the Armada's objective was to sail straight into the teeth of England's fledgling yet tenacious Royal Navy, capture English soil, and then begin to ferry troops across the Armada. However, before the fleet even left port, the commander of the Armada, Alvaro de Bazan, the same Bazan who had protected Lisbon from Drake the year prior, had passed away in February 1588, and so things had to be delayed again, somewhat, as his seat was filled. Bazan's replacement, an accomplished Spanish aristocrat by the name of Alonso Perez de Guzman y Sotomayor, 7th Duke of Medina Sidonia, who we will refer to as simply Medina Sidonia, was a modest bureaucrat and a devout Catholic. But perhaps most of all, he was a capable administrator and was staunchly loyal to Philip, certainly a key reason for his appointment. Because on paper, he was perhaps the least likely candidate for the position. He had only some military experience to call upon, all of which related to the army. He possessed no knowledge of the naval arts, had ever crewed or even led a single ship, and even had a tendency to become horribly seasick, compromising his decision-making abilities while underway. His letters to King Philip highlighting these facts made no impact on his assignment, and, ever the faithful administrator, he went to work doing what he could to prepare his fleet for the actions ahead. By all accounts, true to his work experience, Medina Sidonia proved himself to be an extremely adept manager of men and material. He was able to get the king to grant him additional warships, doubling his number of ships of the line, the main combat vessels, while also shelving the men within the fleet to maximize his manpower, increasing the efficiency of even the smallest warship. For the battles ahead, he was even able to get his hands on nearly double the amount of ammunition that the fleet held when he originally arrived. Yet, for all his endeavors, he still harbored great doubts about the invasion plan. Sailing straight into the teeth of English naval defenses, outright capturing English soil, and then ferrying a massive army across the channel wasn't just militarily difficult, but logistically was a tremendous feat in itself. He wrote to the king, attempting to express his skepticism, but his letter was intercepted by royal officials, who refused to allow the king to read it. Whether he liked it or not, the destiny of Medina Sidonia was now bound to that of the Armadas, and to any of the successes and failures it may encounter in its long voyage ahead. And so, Medina Sidonia was in anything but his best spirits when on the 28th of May, 1588, 
the Spanish Armada finally departed Lisbon and sailed north. Composed of approximately 130 vessels of varying size, the Armada boasted an impressive arsenal of over 2,400 cannons spread throughout the gunrooms of 22 galleons and 108 armed merchant vessels, altogether crewed by some 7,000 sailors and marines. It was the most impressive naval force to ever put to sea at once, and now its full weight bore down upon the cold, rainy shores of southern England. The English, of course, were well aware of Spain's intentions to invade by sea, and so it came as no surprise when, on the 29th of July, English vessels spotted the Armada slowly approaching England from the south, just off the coast of the tip of Cornwall, England's southwestern peninsula, and raced for Plymouth to relay the news. As beacons were lit all along the coast to carry the news to London, the messenger reached Drake, who, according to legend, was in the midst of a spirited game of bowls, and who coolly told the messenger that the Armada will still be there when the game is done, making it clear that he would fight the Spaniards at his leisure, so sure was he of victory. Tossing myths aside, it's believed by most historians now that when the news was delivered to Drake, the tide was rushing into Plymouth from the sea effectively trapping the English vessels within the harbor, as even with the wind, the tide was far too strong to overpower. Therefore, if Drake and his crews were even on board their warships, they could not have departed the port for another few hours anyways. Personally, I prefer the legend. The Spanish, however, bowls or not, had been approaching Plymouth this entire time, and as they closed the distance, Medina Sidonia gathered his lead officers for a council of war. Plymouth lay before them, just on the other side of the horizon, and the idea was brought up amongst the officers that they could ride inbound tides straight into the port, delivering the entire armada right to the Royal Navy's doorstep, guns blazing, where they could destroy the English fleet at anchor. The plan was well received by the council, and was met with their near-unanimous approval. Almost every officer voted in favor of the attack, all except for one. Medina Sidonia had been assigned to his post by the king and for the king, in order to ensure that the king's plan was followed as closely as possible. And every man aboard knew that Philip's plan called for the Armada to strike at the Solent, not at Plymouth. Casting aside the plans of his officers, Medina Sidonia denied their attack on Plymouth, and ordered that they continue sailing east for the Isle of Wight. And so they did. As the Armada sailed past Plymouth, so too did they sail past their best possible avenue to victory. Their sole opportunity of an easy win had been squandered, and they would never again come close to such a chance for as long as they live. The bulk of the English fleet departed Plymouth on the 30th of July, and through skilled sailing overtook the Armada, but seeing the vast enemy formation for their own eyes, decided instead to sail back around to strike from behind. In doing so, they positioned themselves windward of the enemy, utilizing the prevailing western winds to stay to the west of the Armada. This allowed the English to hold the initiative against the Spaniards, as their windward position allowed them to maneuver upon their enemy, whereas the Spaniards could only react to the movement of the English vessels. Fifty-five English warships now stood poised to strike the Armada from the rear, though the Spaniards, still formidable sailors in their own right, maneuvered their formation to defend against the impending attack. Spanish naval doctrine, at this time, was largely based on their experiences in the Mediterranean, itself almost entirely derived from galley-style warfare. Galleys were low, flat ships that had a mast or two for sailing purposes, 
but who also possessed a large quantity of rowers, who were the primary means of propulsion. Their design dated back to the classical era. They had delivered the Mycenaeans of Homer's Iliad onto the shores of Troy in the 2nd millennium BC, for example, but by 1588 AD were still a staple of Mediterranean naval combat. Great galley battles had been fought between the Spaniards and their Mediterranean rivals, the Ottoman Empire, whose galley fleets clashed just as those of the Romans and Carthaginians over millennia before. Galley tactics essentially created a land battle atop the waves, except, instead of land, the combatants stood on wooden decks, where the opposing sides would assail each other with swords, spears, axes, bows, and, more recently, gunpowder weapons at close range, boarding and counterboarding each other's vessels until each individual crew was killed or capitulated. I cover a slightly different flavor of this type of warfare in my episode on Harold Hardrada, except instead of galleys, the Battle of Nisa is fought via Viking longships. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend you do so. It's one of my personal favorites. Anyways, long story short, there was a huge emphasis on closing in for boarding actions in melee combat within the Spanish Navy, a trend which could blatantly be seen in the Armada itself. The Spanish galleons were built tall, possessing castle-like structures on the front and rear of the warships, with smaller vessels still often possessing a castle-like structure at their rear. These fore-and-aft castles effectively served to give the Spaniards the high ground, and therefore the advantage in any boarding action. Thus, the crews of Spanish vessels could also be seen as soldiers. In fact, cannons were viewed as a secondary weapon by the Spaniards, whose gunners, in battle, would fire off a salvo or two as their vessel closed with the enemy, before abandoning their cannons to board their target and fight it out hand-to-hand. The English, meanwhile, had by the late 16th century already moved on to the next generation of naval warfare. By 1588, England had centered its navy not around large and formidable galleons, but on smaller vessels that sat lower in the water. One such design, developed by Sir John Hawkins, one of Drake's earliest teachers in privateering, who he last saw in Part 1, was known as the Race-Built Galleon. Not because it was developed for recreational races, but because it looked like a standard galleon that had its fore and aft castles raised, R-A-Z-E-D, or gotten rid of. The decreased height and weight of the English vessels, often coupled with well-seasoned crews, not only allowed the English warships to sail far faster than their Spanish opposition, but also granted them increased maneuverability, as the English ships could perform far better than their adversaries when sailing close to the wind, an act in which a vessel would get as close as possible to sailing directly against the wind, the least favorable direction for any sailing vessel, while still being able to perform various movements. The English ability to accomplish such maneuvers would dumbfound their Spanish opposition, but they only laid the stage for England's ace up the sleeve. While Spain had been training its sailors to board enemy vessels and take them by sword point, English sailors had conducted countless drills in the art of naval gunnery, to the point where their mastery of the cannon was second to none. As the outnumbered English fleet bore down on the Spaniards, each vessel's respective crew readied themselves for battle. Reacting to the English advance, Medina Sidonia arrayed the armada into a defensive crescent, a classic galley formation, that sat concave towards the English. Placing the majority of his galleons and other sort of warships on the northern and southern tips of the crescent, he kept his supply ships, transports, and other weaker vessels in the center, reinforced with a few more galleons. With his weakened center, he aimed to draw the English into the middle of his formation, upon which the galleons located at the northern and southern points would sweep in, surround, and destroy the Anglos all at once. 
The English, however, decided to take a different approach. Led by Sir Charles Howard, the Lord High Admiral of the Royal Navy, the English vessels were split into two attack groups. The main group, composed of 44 warships and thus the bulk of the English fleet, was led by Sir Howard himself aboard the Ark Royal. To the north, Drake stood aboard the aptly named Revenge, at the head of only 11 ships, a small force, yet in Drake's able hands, it proved to be more than capable for the task at hand. When the signal was given, the two separate forces moved directly against the Spanish formation, Drake's force striking at the northern tip of the Spanish crescent and Howard's at the southern tip. Knowing the Spanish naval playbook, the two forces surged forward against their opposition and turned to unleash salvo after devastating salvo of withering cannon fire against their opposition. The Spaniards replied in kind with their own cannonades, but soon found their efforts to close with and board the English vessels to prove fruitless, as time after time, the English would sail in, exchange fire with the Spaniards, and then utilize their warship's superior maneuverability to withdraw outside of grappling range. Forced to rely on their own skills at gunnery, the Spanish sailors grew frustrated. Their training had scarcely prepared them to keep up with the English cannoneers, and to make matters worse, the English outranged them. Not only were they scarcely landing their shots, but most were plunging into the waters far short of their Anglo opposition. Drake and Howard, despite their success thus far, had been frustrated by their enemy as well. They had been pounding away at the Armada all day, but their targets had been well built, and had been so numerous opposite the English that there was always a different ship to lay into on every attack run. And so, as the sun began to set over the channel waters and July 31st came to a close, the two sides disengaged, with neither side having taken any combat losses, though two Spanish vessels had to be abandoned that night after colliding into each other. However, not everything was so anticlimactic. The first true English victory over the Armada would come only hours later. Following this first engagement, the Armada continued to travel eastwards, Let's not forget that they had to pick up the Duke of Parma and his army in the Netherlands to actually invade southern England. Behind them, Drake and Howard sailed in hot pursuit, pressing forward in the dead of night with Drake in the lead, guiding the rest of the fleet with a lantern placed on the stern of the Revenge. Sticking close behind the Armada, Drake noticed an ailing galleon that had fallen behind the others. She was the Nuestra Señora de Rosario, a 48-gun galleon crewed by over 300 men. But deep in the middle of repairs, she was blissfully unaware of the threat that crept up upon her. Snuffing out the flame in his stern lantern, Drake silently brought the revenge up alongside the galleon and caught her almost entirely by surprise, and capitalizing on his fearsome reputation amongst the Spanish sailors, captured her with minimal resistance. On board the Rosario was a sizable amount of provisions, precious gunpowder, and even better, a copious amount of gold, originally meant to pay the Spanish army fighting the Netherlands, but would now line the coffers of Queen Elizabeth's treasury instead. Minus, of course, the share of loot reserved by the captain and crew. Though the seizure of the Nuestra Señora de Rosario was a great local victory, it wasn't without its problems. The extinguishing of Drake's lantern did much to throw the English fleet into disarray, as the fleet slowly lost cohesion and sailed off in different directions in the dark. This required Howard to spend much of the remaining night and following day reconsolidating his scattered vessels, wasting crucial time and allowing the Armada to put more and more miles in between them. However, Drake's victory was welcomed nonetheless. The channel was only so wide, and they could almost guarantee that Medina Sidonia was continuing to sail east. As soon as they were able the following day, Howard and Drake unfurled their sails and took off in pursuit yet again. Howard and Drake quickly caught up to their quarry, 
who, having only come off slightly worse for wear in the previous engagement, still had plenty of fight left in them. As the English closed in upon the rear of the Armada on the 2nd of August, a sudden change in the wind gave Medina Sidonia and his captains the advantage that they had long desired. Seizing the weather gauge, as the advantage is known, the Armada suddenly turned around and sailed hard for the smaller English fleet. Upon this sudden turn of events, Howard and Drake ordered an immediate withdrawal in order to keep as much distance between themselves and the Armada as possible, while keeping the Spaniards within range the entire time. And so, time after time, the Armada charged forwards, only to be met each time with an ever-elusive foe who vigorously peppered them with salvo after salvo from every angle. Utilizing their veteran crews and taking advantage of their lighter, quicker vessels, the English overcame their disadvantage to the wind to melt in front of the Armada's advance, still firing them along the way. Unable to catch them, the Spanish galleons would return to their lines to reconsolidate before launching yet another attack that ended the same way as it had before, with dead men, damaged hulls, and wasted time. Considering capitalizing on his achievements thus far, Howard led his fleet forward in a line of battle and sailed to meet the Spanish in close quarters combat in an all-out frontal attack. Though, he had a change of heart at the last minute and broke off hostilities, allowing the Spanish to retreat with minimal casualties. Though his armada had survived the past two running battles down the channel, Medina Sidonia was growing concerned. His ships were running critically low on provisions, and his men had been reduced to partial rations almost entirely across the board. If only they had more barrel staves to prepare their logistics ahead of the invasion. If the armada was to retain any significant combat strength for the invasion ahead, then it would have to head into friendly ports soon, lest their starvation drive them into the jailer hands of the English. Sailing into the Solent, that strait of water between the Isle of Wight and the southern English coast, he sent word to the Duke of Parma, desperately inquiring if he had completed the necessary preparations to depart. Time was of the essence, and so I'm sure it internally killed Medina Sidonia when on the 4th of August, his lookouts in the crow's nest caught sight of a reinforced and rejuvenated English fleet. The English had massed their force west of the Solent, and before the Spaniards' very eyes, split into four separate squadrons. Most notably, the accomplished explorer Martin Frobisher was at the head of one squadron, with Drake leading another in a potentially lethal uppercut against Spanish positions from the south. Fearing the armada would be overwhelmed and destroyed in the tight confines of the Solent, Medina Sidonia sent a detachment south to keep Drake at bay as the rest of the fleet fled east, away from the English, and instead into the unforgiving English geography. The narrow waters of the Solent provided the last safe harbor for the Armada, and now beyond them, Medina Sidonia was forced to sail for Calais, a well-established port on the northeastern coast of France, only 40 kilometers west of Dunkirk, where the Duke of Parma uncomfortably sat with his disease-ridden army. On August 6th, 1588, Medina Sidonia anchored his fleet in a tight defensive formation just offshore of Calais, arranging them into what would certainly appear to the untrained eye as a large floating fortress upon the waves. He then began to correspond with Parma, and assumed his men were ready to depart Dunkirk by barge transports, made the quick sail to Calais, board the Armada's vessels, and finally began the long-awaited invasion of England. It was a great thought, but as is often the case, life hits hard with a far more difficult reality. The port of Dunkirk was, unfortunately for the Spanish, at the time blockaded by a few dozen Dutch flyboats, small fast craft that put even the English race-built galleons to shame, and which had such a low draft that only they and they alone could zip up and down the shallow waters off the region's shores. Entirely unmolested by the Spanish, the Dutch effectively shut down any possibility of Parma's army relocating to the Armada by sea. 
Whether Howder Drake knew this matters little, however, as they had finally cornered their prey. Approaching the port on the 7th of August, the English fleet took one look at the defensive menace that lay before them, the bristling guns, the towering fore and aft castles packed with armed men, the solid wooden hulls presenting themselves as great palisades against any would-be assailant, and knew exactly what needed to be done. After the sun set that evening, the English got to work. Drake and Howard identified eight warships within the fleet that could be sacrificed for a greater purpose, and so sent the crews to work removing the warships' guns, provisions, and anything of value, all the while packing the vessels to the brim with tar, pitch, brimstone, and any spare gunpowder. Most of the crew were evacuated, save for a few brave volunteers aboard each warship who had a dangerous, though decisive, task ahead. At midnight, a handful of English vessels towed the eight transformed warships towards the Armada, still anchored confidently within its defensive formation. As the eight warships were brought closer to the Spanish positions, the signal was given, and one by one, eight fires began to break out, each on their own respective ship, subsequently followed by the abandonment of the ships by their skeleton crews. Taking advantage of the favorable tides and wind, and fearful of the fire claiming the vessels, the English ships cut their tow cables and watched as the eight burning warships floated towards the unsuspecting armada. Standing watch in the dead of night, a task that had been largely quiet and uneventful since they left Lisbon, the Spanish sailors and officers had to have witnessed eight small lights approaching them from the channel. Were they scouts returning from the channel? Messengers from Parma and the army? Englishmen requesting peace, perhaps? Their confusion gave way to horror, as the fires extended across the entirety of the vessels, consuming the decks, entering the holds, and climbing up high into the masts and rigging, presenting the outline of over half a dozen ships in a fiery blaze, each one growing closer and closer. All at once, the alarm sounded across the armada. Fire ships! Incoming fire ships! All men brace for impact! Drake and Howard had taken eight damaged, outdated, or otherwise less useful warships, had packed them full of flammable and explosive material, set them alight, and sent them careening towards the armada. Medina Sidonia was frightfully awoken by his officers, and rushing on deck, gazed upon what he had thought to be certain doom. The blazing flotilla advancing upon his precious armada was by no means composed of run-of-the-mill fire ships. They were far larger, and the brightness of their respective infernos could only mean one thing. They were hellburners, floating bombs that had slain hundreds of Spaniards at the Siege of Antwerp just three years earlier. Medina Sidonia watched as some of his captains, bravely taking it upon themselves to counteract the hellburners, sailed out, caught the fireships under tow, and led them away from the rest of the armada where they peacefully ran aground. Many more captains, however, gripped with fear, ordered the cutting of their anchor lines at once, and immediately mobilized their ships in order to avoid the hellburners, for better or for worse. Maintaining their positions, Medina Sidonia and the lead officers of his largest warships could do nothing as over a hundred ships now chaotically took off across the waves. As dawn rose on the 8th of August, all of the English fireships had either burned out or sank. Not a single one had struck any Spanish vessel. Yet the attack had been wildly successful. Forced to cut their anchor lines to avoid the fireships, the armada was scattered in pre-dawn darkness by the wind and tides, and now stricken by a rising wind from the southwest, found themselves too far east of Calais to return to their safe harbor. 
Their defensive crescent had been absolutely shattered, and as the armada attempted to reconsolidate near the coastal town of Graveline, their loose formation of exposed vessels was pounced upon by Howard, Drake, and the rest of the English fleet. The previous engagements against the armada had taught Howard, Drake, and the rest of the English leadership two great things. One, that the oak hulls of the Spanish vessels could be penetrated by a cannonball as long as it was fired within 100 yards. And two, gleaned from Drake's capture of the Rosario, it was now known that the Armada's warships utilized guns that were so large that the tight confines of the vessels prevented their crews from firing, reloading, and firing again at any great speed. Capitalizing on this information, the English struck hard. Sailing near the Spaniards, but remaining just out of range, the English coaxed the Spanish gunners into firing, upon which their shots would all fall short. Taking advantage of their long reloading times, the English battle line then sailed to within 100 yards of the armada, and let loose broadside after punishing broadside straight into the exposed hulls of the Spanish warships, sending wrought iron cannonballs straight through the oaken body of the ships and killing the Spanish gunners in droves. As per their doctrine, the armada did what they could to close with and board the English warships, but as they had done countless times before, the superbly built and crewed English vessels sailed out of grappling range, before then unloading more and more cannonades at what was effectively point-blank range. Spanish losses mounted to the point where there weren't enough trained gunners to man the cannons, whose places had to be filled with untrained soldiers. As a result, the armada had little to reply to the English broadsides with, and as the battle developed, each English cannonade was only answered with a desperate, scattered fusillade of small arms fire, as the Spanish soldiers aboard did all they could to affect the battle with their pistols and muskets, with little success. The battle continued in this fashion throughout the majority of the day, taking up the rest of the morning and the early afternoon, until the English ran into an enemy they could not easily defeat. Having been firing almost non-stop for hours on end, their ammunition stocks were rapidly depleting, and by mid-afternoon, had been entirely expended. Sailors had taken to loading spare chains and other iron material into the guns when, at approximately 4 p.m., the English guns fired their last salvo before Howard led them away, breaking off the engagement. The Battle of Graveline had been a smashing success for Howard, Drake, Queen Elizabeth, and the rest of England, though its success largely came from the aftermath. As a matter of fact, the short-term effects of the battle placed it in a rather indecisive light. English casualties had been negligible, yet despite the entire day's fighting, only three of the Armada's warships can be said to have been outright sunk. Though three more had been captured, including the violent defense of the Gallius San Lorenzo before its capitulation, the rest of the Armada was still afloat. Though a large number of its surviving vessels had been damaged in the fighting, many severely, the continued presence of the Armada within the English Channel was still nothing less than a serious threat against England herself. However, this threat largely began to lose its teeth in the days following Graveline. Pushed east by both the victorious English fleet and the prevailing winds, Medina Sidonia was forced to take the battered armada towards the dangerous shoals of the Zealand banks. Located off the Dutch coast, the shoals were a treacherous obstacle for the armada, who could easily wreck upon its submerged ground, something made even more menacing as the shoal markers had been removed by Dutch rebels in order to confound Spanish naval activities in the area. Fortunately for the Spanish, however, the wind changed its course, allowing the armada to flee north, into the aptly named North Sea. Forced away from the European continent, the armada had been soundly defeated. With neither the wind nor the balance of power in their favor, the armada was pushed further and further north, 
dogged the entire way by Howard, Drake, and the rest of their captains. Behind them, still crammed within their disease-ridden encampments, sat the army with Parma, who could do absolutely nothing, and so broke camp and prepared to rejoin the act of fighting in the Netherlands. King Philip II of Spain's invincible armada, the invasion of England, and his plan to restore a Catholic monarch to the English throne now lay dead in the water. The armada had been defeated, and there was nothing that Medina Sidonia nor any of his captains could do but sail for home, eager to return to friendly ports. But, unfortunately for the Spanish, this would prove to be the most costly event of the armada's entire ordeal. They had to make it to Spain and Portugal, but were left with two extraordinarily unsavory options. They could either A, sail back home the exact way they had come, straight through the English fleet, and then through the gauntlet that was the English Channel, or B, take the long way home and continue to sail north all around the British Isles, keeping Drake and Howard to their rear, but sailing straight into the teeth of the unforgiving North Atlantic. The odds were weighed, considerations made, and the die was cast. Fleeing their pursuers, Medina Sidonia thought it best to risk his fleet against the weather rather than face the certain defeat at sea that the English had in store for them. Refusing to look back, the Armada continued to sail north into the history books. Hounding the Armada in their movement up England's eastern coast, Howard and Drake made sure to stay close enough behind the Spaniards in order to prevent any sort of landing effort, while at the same time staying far enough behind the Armada so as not to risk open battle. What Medina Sidonia and his staff didn't know was that the English fleet was almost entirely out of ammunition, and though they were riding high off of the victory at Gravelines, there was little chance that they could repeat it. Thus, wary of their battered opponent, but still unable to force their destruction, Howard and Drake were more than content to let the Spaniards sail to their own demise against the North Atlantic's murderous autumn gales. Keeping this in mind, as the Armada sailed north past the latitude approximately corresponding to the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, the English fleet turned south. Convinced that the Armada had been neutralized as a threat to English sovereignty, Howard and Drake broke off their pursuit and took their fleet south, returning to ports all along the English coast as victorious heroes. Sir Francis Drake, yet again, was met with terrific jubilation upon his homecoming, greeted upon his return as he had been countless times before with joyous celebration. He and the rest of his countrymen were praised as valiant defenders of the kingdom, the David to Spain's Goliath, who had once again sailed straight into the heart of adversity and come out on top, another feather in his cap to mark him as a champion of the era. Though Drake was but one cog in a larger machine throughout this entire event, his superb leadership and bravado did much to multiply the effectiveness of the English war effort at sea. Would the English have been so victorious without him? Perhaps but it is no matter. He was there. He had a large hand in the decision-making process and had led from the front the entire time. So at the end of it all, he can be rightfully counted as one of the key instrumental victors over Philip's invincible armada. But as he relished yet another victory, it was impossible for him to know that his defeat over the armada was to serve as the high watermark for his nautical career. Racked by disease, the Spanish Armada fought its way across the savage North Atlantic, rounding the northern point of Scotland and sailing for Spain via Ireland's western coast, where many of their once formidable warships were dashed upon the rocks. 7,000 sailors had set out from Spain aboard over 130 warships and other assorted vessels when the Armada began its campaign against the English. 
after the survivors had all returned back to Spain and Portugal bit by bit, not as a fleet, but as lone vessels in small groups. They could count among themselves only 65 ships still afloat. In regards to the crews, of the 7,000 sailors, only some 2,000 remained. Some had been killed in combat, but far more had died by drowning, exposure, starvation, or disease during their horrendous retreat. Many, too, had survived the trials and tribulations at sea, only to end up shipwrecked on the western shores of Scotland and Ireland, where more often than not, they succumbed to the elements or were slaughtered by local mobs. The naval arm of the Spanish Empire had been absolutely gutted, and in the winter of 1588, Spain and Portugal found themselves wide open to any punitive efforts the English may launch across the waves. Queen Elizabeth, who is well aware of this, did just that, and so dispatched a fleet of 150 Anglo-Dutch vessels under Sir Francis Drake to strike the Spanish ports on the Atlantic, where the surviving vessels of the Armada laid, either awaiting or undergoing repairs. Unfortunately, the length of this episode is growing rather long, and I can't go into as much detail as I would like. But the entire ordeal, often referred to as either the English Armada or the Counter Armada, can be summed up like this. Despite some local successes, the entire campaign was largely undone by surprisingly stout Spanish defenses. Enemy action, combined with an outbreak of disease aboard the English vessels, cost the English over 10,000 men out of an attacking force of some 25,000, and at the end of it all, were only able to return to England with 150 captured cannons and about 30,000 British pounds plundered from the enemy. This paltry amount of loot, however, was grossly outweighed by the 40 vessels the Anglo-Dutch fleet had lost along the way. Compounding upon the egregious aftermath of it all, the English Armada's failure had been so costly that England's finances had been almost entirely drained, something that did much to undermine the English war effort. Summary complete. I highly recommend you look into the English Armada yourself. It's a fascinatingly tragic tale of how absolutely everything can go wrong, and for obvious reasons, is often viewed as the English counterpart to the failure of the Spanish Armada. Anyways, we'll keep carrying on. Such an extreme defeat was hard for the crowd to stomach, and in an investigation to clarify the exact cause of the expedition's failure, Drake's own misjudgments and poor decisions were highlighted. As the commander of the English Armada, its defeat was thrown squarely at his feet, and as punishment, Drake was denied any naval command for an entire six years after the closure of the investigation. In the meantime, he had to make do as the commander of the coastal defenses of Plymouth, a far cry from the glory he had once known as England's greatest captain and admiral. But fret not, dear listener, because you can't keep a good adventurer like Drake down for long. Chained to the British Isles, it was only inevitable that he slipped his bonds and took to the high seas one last time, one last adventure. And so, in 1595, he took his final command. At long last, he was going back to the Americas to plunder his old stomping grounds, the Spanish Main. On August 28th, 1595, Sir Francis Drake sailed out from Plymouth at the head of 27 warships and 2,500 men composed of sailors and soldiers alike, including his second-in-command, Sir John Hawkins. Drake's orders were simple, sail for the Spanish Americas and wreak havoc upon their gold and silver shipments, nearly identical in spirit to the orders he had received decades before, which kicked off his extraordinary career. 
standing at the front of his flagship, the Defiance. With his fleet behind him and a broad expanse of untold fortunes before him, Drake knew that he was exactly where he needed to be. After six long years on shore duty, he was finally taking the fight to the Spaniards once again. Come hell or high water, he wouldn't have it any other way. Drake's fleet sailed south from England and made for the Canary Islands, aiming to sack it and acquire some early plunder and additional provisions, something that was by now Drake's standard operating procedure before crossing the Atlantic. However, that October, as the Canaries appeared on the horizon, Drake's officers began to split over whether or not it was a good idea to commence any sort of attack on the islands. Hawkins strongly opposed launching any action against the islands, stating that doing so would expose the fleet to unnecessary risks and detract both time and resources from their primary goal of striking the Spanish Americas. One of the other captains of the expedition, a man by the name of Sir Thomas Baskerville, instead argued that an attack should be undertaken and that he alone could take the town of Las Palmas in four hours and ransom it off within four days. The officers debated back and forth for some time, and Hawkins at one point even threatened to take half of the fleet and sail for the Caribbean on his own. But in the end, Hawkins begrudgingly acquiesced, and plans were drawn up for the assault on Las Palmas. Located on the island of Gran Canaria, Las Palmas was protected from any seaward attack by two forts, named the Santa Catalina and the Santa Ana, two small castles that the English would need to capture before they could fall upon the city. Drake himself led a scouting party offshore of the Santa Ana, placing buoys to help guide the future landing parties. On the morning of October 6th, the English attacked, sending 21 of their warships up against the two Spanish forts. Much to the surprise of Drake and the fleet, however, the defenders of the forts opened up on them with a small number of cannons mounted atop their ramparts. Yet, it wasn't the resistance itself that was surprising, a fort without guns was hardly a fort at all, but rather, it was the accuracy and precision with which the Spaniards handled their small guns that absolutely shocked the English attackers. Thus, a gunnery duel began between the two sides, the numerous yet exposed English cannoneers taking on their few yet fortified Spanish counterparts. Blow after blow was exchanged until, after hours of fighting, it was apparent that the Spanish had the clear upper hand. Much to the dismay of the English, the Spanish handled their guns expertly, seriously damaging four of Drake's warships, and entirely suppressing even the mere thought of launching any shore parties, lest they get blown out of the water and route to the beach. Forced to withdraw from the engagement, Drake sailed his fleet outside the range of the guns and began to reconnoiter the rest of the island for other possible landing sites. Finding that the rest of the island was protected either by additional coastal defenses or impassable terrain, however, Drake reluctantly called off the assault. Hawkins was right. The failed attack on Las Palmas had been nothing but a waste of time and resources. And so, with a less than stellar opening round, Drake led his fleet west, across the Atlantic. Hawkins had been right about the risks of the attack, but it was of little benefit. As the fleet crossed the Atlantic, he was struck by a fever, one so severe that it cost him his life. He passed away at sea on November 12, 1595, at the age of 63. While today, at the time of this writing, June 2022, he is often vilified and critiqued for his early involvement in the African slave trade, it is important to assess the man in totality. He was, still is, and always will be one of the founding fathers of the Royal Navy, whose prudent decision-making as treasurer of the Navy got it on its feet, and whose designing and construction of the race-built galleons not only gave the English an advantage at sea, but also revolutionized naval warfare for centuries to come. 
outside of his administrative accomplishments, he had also played a key role in the preservation of the English state on two occasions, serving as third in command of the English forces against the Armada after Howard and Drake, and single-handedly exposing the Spanish-backed conspiracy to depose Queen Elizabeth I and replace her with a Catholic puppet queen, often referred to as the Rodolfi Plot of 1571. The death of Sir John Hawkins was a great loss for the English monarchy, and was felt even more so by his old student and friend, Sir Francis Drake. But disease was an all-too-common part of life in the 16th century, and the ongoing conflict necessitated that the stages of grief pass quickly. Hawkins' role as second-in-command was replaced by Captain Baskerville, who, it could be argued, was the brainchild of the failed Las Palmas assault. But that hardly mattered. On November 22nd, Drake's fleet caught sight of their new target, the port of San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Drake readied his captains and crews for battle. The 1595 Battle of San Juan had perhaps the greatest financial stakes any naval battle in the Americas had ever had up to that point, because the potential loot within San Juan wasn't composed of just the wealth of its residents and clergy. Oh no. Lying safe and secure within La Fortaleza, the governor's palace, sat over 2 million gold and silver pesos, courtesy of the Spanish West Indian fleet, who were in the process of transporting the vast treasure to Spain earlier in the year, before a violent storm racked the fleet and forced them into Puerto Rico for repairs. Word was sent to Spain that a new courier fleet was needed, and so the king dispatched a small fleet of five frigates under the command of Admiral Pedro Teo de Guzman to sail to Puerto Rico and ferry the treasure back to Spain. Sailing west from Spain, Admiral Teo actually overtook part of Drake's fleet, who had been held back by their attack on Las Palmas, and had captured one of Drake's vessels, a straggler who had fallen behind the main fleet, where, upon interrogation of the officers, he learned that the English were sailing for Puerto Rico. Upon learning this information, Teo spurned his fleet forward as fast as they could go, desperate to overtake the larger English fleet. The dragon was on his way to San Juan. He was sure of it, and the defenders would need all the help that they could get. As Drake moved his fleet closer to the port, he couldn't help but observe the skyline, counting the masts of the vessels who sat within San Juan Harbor. Sailing ever nearer, the revelation that five navy frigates were waiting for him was certainly a cause for consternation. Oh, where did the days of an easy plunder go? Knowing that to get to the fleet he'd first have to get past the coastal guns, he continued to sail closer, probing the range and defenses of the port's guns. As expected, a barrage of canned fire erupted, courtesy of Castillo San Felipe del Moro, who protected the entrance to the port, and red-hot iron flew in the direction of the fleet. Many of the balls struck their intended target, and it certainly must have been hard for Drake to brush aside the fact that some of the shots had not only pierced the walls of his flagship, but had even destroyed his own cabin. Shots were exchanged between the English fleet and the Spanish guns, but having had enough of coastal fortifications for one campaign and having accomplished his surveillance goals, Drake sailed his fleet out of range and dropped anchor at the mouth of San Juan Bay, near the Isla de Cabras. There, he rested his men, as he and the rest of the senior officers planned for the night's attack. Just before 10 p.m. on the night of November 22nd, 1595, Drake dispatched 25 pinnaces from his fleet, each carrying approximately 50 to 60 well-armed men. Their objective? To sail under the nose of El Moro Castle and into San Juan Harbor, where they would take the port by surprise and burn the Spanish frigates at anchor. 
Their advance was undertaken expertly, as each small boat sailed close enough to the fort that none of the defenders' guns had even the slightest chance of depressing low enough to fire upon the attackers. But this did not mean that the English had gone unseen, as reports of their rapid movement towards the harbor were hurriedly sent to Admiral Teo's fleet. As the English boats closed upon the anchored frigates, they came face to face with an enemy who was alert and well prepared. The ensuing battle lasted for but an hour. The English rode hard to press themselves upon the defending frigates, whose crews opened up upon the exposed English boats with a withering display of musket fire. The battle only began to increase in intensity as the English reached the frigates, with one Spanish account vividly describing the action. In his journal, the Spaniard wrote, quote, At the same time, they set fire to the Santa Isabel and Magdalena frigates and to the Santa Clara, which was extinguished. But the third time that the Magdalena frigate, of which Domingo de Ansara was captain, took fire, it was impossible to extinguish the flames, as the ship took fire at the stern and burned furiously. And all that could be done to maintain a footing on board was done by the aforesaid captain and the people with him, until the ship was just burnt down and twelve men were killed by the enemy's musketry, besides as many more burnt. The battle lasted for an hour, the most obstinately contested that was ever seen and the whole port was illumined by the burning frigate in a manner favorable for the rest, who could thus see to point our artillery and that of the forts, with which, and with the musketry and stones thrown from the frigate, they did such effect that the enemy, after about an hour, during which the combat lasted, as I have said, retreated with the loss of nine or ten boats and more than four hundred men, besides many more wounded, while on our side the only loss was that of the frigate and forty men killed or burnt besides a few wounded by the musketry." Unquote. Drake's boat assault of San Juan had succeeded in sinking a frigate, but had come at a steep cost. Having lost 400 hardened soldiers and sailors, the combat strength of Drake's expedition had been greatly diminished. Maintaining his strong position at the mouth of the harbor, his fleet still greatly outnumbered that of Admiral Teo's. He considered launching a second attack, but wary of the staunch resistance that was to be expected, decided to withdraw instead. Two days after the failed attack, Drake put Puerto Rico behind him and pointed his bow for the rich coasts of northern South America. Almost a month later, Admiral Teo and his remaining frigates departed San Juan for Spain, loaded down with two million pesos, untouched by even the most daring raider of them all. By early December, Drake's expedition had reached the Colombian coast, where he led his fleet on a series of lightning raids. Among other Spanish colonial settlements, the prominent modern-day Colombian cities of Riracha and Santa Marta were seized, looted, and stripped of all their gold and precious jewels. The captains and crews of the English fleet filled the holds of their warships with riches, and the newfound gains did much to overcome the poor memory of the recent failed attacks. Yet, while Drake and his men plundered the Spanish main, they found that their greatest enemy was not the Spanish Empire, but rather disease, which had continually reared its ugly head. In a month's time, many Englishmen had succumbed to a variety of diseases, which, compounded with the combat losses at San Juan, meant that Drake's forces were far too weak to try their hand at the jewel of Colombia, Cartagena. It had fallen to Drake once before, but to attempt its seizure now was deemed far too risky. Forced to reassess his endeavor, Drake's mind wandered west, and with it, the idea that he could return to the place that had brought him so much fame and fortune all those years ago. Panama, oh sweet Panama, the jugular of Spanish treasure flows, the overland gateway to the mighty Pacific Ocean, the land which called his name. He had last set foot upon its white sand shores over 20 years ago, 
yet he knew deep inside that it was his for the taking. Should he claim Panama for the queen, he would not only grant England a major foothold in Central America, but split the territory of Spanish America in half and violently disrupt the passage of the Spanish treasure fleets. For such a feat, he was sure to be made governor of Panama, an excellent bonus to the vast riches that certainly awaited him and his men upon arrival. The idea of an English Panama was too good to ignore. His mind was made, and on the 6th of January 1596, Sir Francis Drake dropped anchor just offshore of Nombre de Dios, his old port of call. Awaiting his arrival, the town had been abandoned, defended only by a small fort nearby, garrisoned by only around a hundred militiamen. Drake ordered his men to disembark, and the English forces hit the beaches of Panama with plunder on their mind. Forming up the expedition's soldiers, Drake's second-in-command, Captain Baskerville, led an infantry assault on the fort and quickly overran the defenders, who offered only a token resistance. Upon his arrival, Drake found the port itself to be empty. Its inhabitants had been warned of the dragon's appearance in the Caribbean long before, and so had had plenty of time to evacuate, bringing with them anything worth taking, save an oddly placed chest of silver found in a watchtower just outside of the settlement. Despite the additional ransacking of the empty frigates and merchant vessels in the port, little in the way of treasure was found, but it didn't matter. At long last, the English had a foothold in Central America. Drake's conquest of Panama had begun, and having taken the key settlement on the Atlantic coast, it was now high time to march west. The rich port of Panama, often referred today in the English-speaking world as Panama City, and no, not the one in Florida, sat on the Pacific coast of the Isthmus. As I've mentioned in the past, it was here where the Spanish treasure fleet of the Pacific would unload its riches from the gold and silver mines of South America, before a mule train would take the precious cargo overland to Nombre de Dios, where it would then be shipped to Spain. In order to conquer Panama, Drake would have to take both Nombre de Dios and Panama City. But in order to capture the latter, he would have to defeat the scattered Spanish colonial forces lurking in the dense Panamanian jungle. Beginning his campaign, Drake dispatched Thomas Baskerville westward with a force of 750 soldiers. Moving into the impregnable jungle, the hostile terrain forced them to march along an old road that cut east to west across the isthmus, canalizing the movement of Baskerville's force. For three days they marched, assailed the entire way by swarms of insects, incessant rain, and oppressive humidity. At the end of the third day, having covered some 30 or so miles in their march thus far, Baskerville's force was only perhaps a day away from their objective when, emerging from the jungle, their march was cut off by a massive gorge. Leading his men down the gorge and then up its far side, the small jungle road they followed became only more dangerous with each passing step. As the English soldiers slowly climbed up the hillside, the road suddenly ceased to be dangerous and instead became outright lethal. Located atop the hill in defensive fortifications, 70 Spanish soldiers were positioned behind earthwork walls, with their approach protected by an impenetrable abatis, a series of sharpened logs facing the attacker, kind of like an ancient precursor to barbed wire, itself placed behind a formidable defile, turning the Spanish position into a makeshift fortress. Seeing their only path forward blocked by the enemy, and outnumbering them over 10 to 1, Baskerville led the initial charge up the hill, only to find his enemy's position to be nigh unassailable. Additional attacks probed the Spaniards' defenses, but did nothing more than demonstrate how well chosen the defenders had selected their terrain. No alternate route was found that would allow the English force to either outflank or bypass the enemy, 
and Baskerville led his men in attack after attack, each one accomplishing nothing more than contributing to the ever-growing list of English casualties. The coffin on Baskerville's offensive was closed when, after three hours of non-stop fighting, 50 Spanish arquebusiers arrived, tipping the balance of power permanently in favor of the defender. By then, too, Baskerville had realized that much of his troops' gunpowder had been ruined by the rain and humidity, and assessing that even if he did win a victory and march on Panama City, he wouldn't have enough troops to hold it, Baskerville thought it best to call off the attack. And so, the English retreated, leaving behind 70 men killed in action, including Baskerville's own brother. They had barely scratched the Spanish defenses. Beaten down by the enemy, weather, and terrain, Baskerville's contingent returned to Nombre de Dios in a shattered state of affairs. Their defeat destroyed the morale of the expedition. But not only did it sink the common soldier or sailor, it had also disheartened Drake, who until then had been utterly unyielding in the face of opposition. He had smacked the Spanish Empire back and forth across the Caribbean on two separate previous occasions, three if you count his exploits the month prior in Colombia. He had struck the enemy where they least expected it in the Pacific, and had sailed around the entire globe so that he could fight another day. He was instrumental in the defeat of the Armada, and was a beloved hero across all of England, who more than deserved the honor and glory heaped upon him by his friends, and who equally deserved every ounce of respect granted to him by his foes. But the weight of the failed English Armada weighed heavily in his mind. And now, having been granted command at sea again, only to face setback after setback, it was enough to break a man, even one as implacable as Sir Francis Drake. On January 25th, 1596, Drake withdrew from Panama, abandoning Nombre de Dios and sailing his fleet towards the Isla Escudo de Verguas, a small island located just off of Panama's northwestern shore. After the ships had dropped their anchors, Drake reviewed the status of the soldiers and sailors under his command only to find that disease had ravaged their ranks so harshly that not even 40 healthy men were left standing. Low on water, the few healthy standing men that remained within the ranks were sent ashore to draw what water they could from a nearby river, but were set upon by the local inhabitants and massacred. The handful of survivors fled back to the fleet still anchored offshore and brought with them the horrible tale of the tragedy that befell them. The news was promptly delivered to Drake, though bedridden in his cabin on account of a debilitating bout of dysentery, he could do little but order his captains to do what they could to make the survivors more comfortable. Enough men had died on the ill-fated voyage so far, and there was no use sending anyone else ashore. It was time to set sail and return home. Drake, however, wouldn't be going anywhere. Sensing the end was near, Drake asked his servants and assistants to dress him in his full, finest suit of armor. He had lived his life as a soldier and a sailor, as a captain and as an admiral, and damn it, he intended to go out looking the part. On the night of January 28th, 1596, Sir Francis Drake passed away within his cabin aboard the Defiance. He was only 55 years old. At long last, the dragon was dead his passing occurring not too far away from where his legend had been born decades before. Taking command of the fleet, Thomas Baskerville sailed into the waters around Portobello, Panama, and placing Drake's body within a lead-lined coffin, gave him a burial at sea. To this day, the exact location of Drake's coffin, perhaps by now largely buried by the sea floor, is a mystery, one that has eluded historians and treasure hunters 
for over 400 years. The legacy of Sir Francis Drake, at first glance, can often be mistaken for being fairly common in regards to the legacies left behind by other naval heroes of his time. Drake's exploits were more than understandably championed by a grateful people who saw him as a defensive bulwark against their historical rival, and his astounding victories gave other naval officers and aspiring midshipmen a larger-than-life figure to look up to and to emulate. But there is a reason why Sir Francis Drake was still lionized well into the late 20th century. His death was one of the greatest losses of the Elizabethan era, an era that did much to lay the groundwork of the later British Empire, which to this day still holds the title of largest empire in world history, which at its height in 1920, barely more than a century ago, encompassed both one quarter of the world's total land area and one quarter of its entire population. Drake's victories over the Spanish throughout his various campaigns proved to both the English populace and politicians alike that the small island kingdom could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe against the might of the Spanish Empire and come out on top, enheartening multiple generations of Englishmen to take to sea in pursuit of gold and glory. His circumnavigation of the globe opened the entire world to English privateering, which greatly enriched the Kingdom of England at the expense of its global rivals. In turn, the English crown funneled more and more money into the Royal Navy, which laid the foundation for Britannia's centuries-long rule over the waves. This naval supremacy did much to further the international reach of what would soon in time become the British Empire, though it had all started with a few isolated English colonies on the east coast of North America, at least partly inspired, and whose geographic doors were at least partially opened by the Admiral, Adventurer, and nautical hero, Sir Francis Drake. This is, at long last, the conclusion of Expedition History's Drake Trilogy, and we can't thank you enough for tuning in. It was our absolute honor to cover Sir Francis Drake, one of my personal historical heroes, and we hope you enjoyed listening to us go on and on about his life as much as we enjoyed making a show about him. The Drake Trilogy has been the most daunting effort we've undertaken on the show thus far, and we appreciate you sticking with us through the months-long gaps between episodes. If you found yourself at least somewhat entertained or educated by our show along the way, please rate us 5 stars on your podcast listening platform of choice. It costs nothing to you and means everything to us. Thank you again for listening to this show, once described by one of my coworkers as surprisingly good. And we'll see you next time on Expedition History. Oh,